Well, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time zone you may be in, and welcome to the Holistic Leadership Podcast. Um, I'm Dr. Travis Hearn, uh, my co-host, Jeffrey Roche, and we are just excited, just elated to have um, Dr. Paul LeBlanc with us today. Um, so just to give a quick introduction of, of, of Dr. LeBlanc, uh, he's the president of, of Southern New Hampshire University. Um, he's been that since 2003, under, and under Paul's leadership, SNHU has grown from 2,800 students to over 160,000 learners, and is the largest nonprofit provider of online higher education in the country. Dr. LeBlanc is the author of Students First, Equity, Access, and Opportunity in Higher Education, and Broken, How Our Social Systems Are Failing Us. Uh, Forbes magazine has listed him as one of the uh, one of its uh, 15 classroom revolutionaries and one of the most influential people in higher education. Uh, Washington Monthly named him one of the America's 10. Sorry, let me redo that. <laughs> Speak it too quickly. So Forbes magazine has listed him as one of its 15 classroom revolutionaries and one of the most influential people in higher education. Washington Monthly named him one of America's 10 most innovative university presidents. And in 2018, Paul won the prestigious TIAA Institute uh, Huber Award for Leadership Excellence in Higher Education, joining some of the most respected university and college presidents in higher ed. On a little bit of a personal note, we'll get into this today. Paul immigrated to the United States as a child and was the first person in his extended family to attend college and as a graduate uh, of the Framingham State University with his Bachelor's of Arts degree, Boston College with a Master's of Arts degree, and the University of Massachusetts for his PhD. From 1993 to 1996, he directed a technology startup for the Houghton Mifflin Publishing Company and was the president of the Marlboro College uh, from 1996 to 2003 and became president of SNHU in 2003. His wife, Patricia, and is, a, is an attorney, and they live two daughters, Emma and Hannah. So that is an introduction um, with, that I've left, I had to, to, to comb through. That's an impressive resume, Dr. LeBlanc. Thank you for being here. Um, you've done some amazing things and continue to do some amazing things in education. So thank you for being here. Hello, Travis. Thank you so much for having me. I don't need to use Dr. LeBlanc. It's Paul, but uh, no, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, Paul. Um, so I, I, I've looked through your social media, Twitter. If, if you are not following Dr. LeBlanc, or excuse me, Paul, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, you've got to go check it out. You, your, your handle on Twitter is, is you're trying to understand how we can make the world a better place through education and finding better ways to do it. Now, can you unpack that a little bit and what you mean about that? Yeah, I mean, I think... I'll, I'll speak about this in an American context, but I think it's true globally that the most powerful engine we've ever had for social mobility, which I do think is linked to social justice and equity, is education. Um, it, it's transformative. It's transformative for the individual, but it powers our workforce. It powers our research and innovation. If you work in the tech space, I mean, it doesn't mean everyone has to have a post-secondary credential, though increasingly having something after high school is increasingly important. So that could be to be, you know, to, to be a great welder right now is an in-demand job and you don't have to go to college, but you do have to do something more than high school. But education in all of its forms, I think is an incredibly powerful uh, um, opportunity-making platform for our society. I think it's I've long, I've long thought that, so that little sentence that you wrote that's on my Twitter handle has been true for a long time, but right now the world feels particularly broken. Like whatever we're doing today is not working very well, both in our politics and in terms of our climate and our environment. I think in terms of social inequities in our country, we've got to learn new ways. Higher ed's got to think harder about how we're preparing people to live in a world that's changing so fast. Um, 
And I think, you know, I'm spending a lot of my time these days on artificial intelligence and how it changes learning and the noetic economy of our culture. The, the idea of noetic economy is like literally how the society thinks. And we should talk a little bit about that. But we're going to have to we have to relearn a lot. And maybe things have to be this broken. The title of my more recent book, things may have to be this broken in order for us to do the hard things we need to do to get it right. So Dr. LeBlanc, it, it's interesting, obviously, because um, as you know, I've spent my whole career in healthcare and higher education. And I always tell people both industries uh, obviously have their nuances, but but both are, are uh, pretty, pretty similar in a lot of ways. One is, uh, you know, not the most innovative industries, uh, you know, generally, um, very risk averse, uh, secondly, mm-hmm. um, and um, generally also are, are, are impacted by a lot of these newer things. And to your point, AI, uh, I was just at a healthcare uh, summit, you know, the past two days, that was a big topic. Um, in fact, the HHS lead for AI was there. And, you know, she was reminding everyone, like, let's remember, AI has powered a ton of healthcare medical devices for a, quite a while. And people yep. are like, oh, like, I didn't know that. And so, you know, it's just, it's really interesting. Um, I'm curious, you know, one of the things that um, you and I've talked about in the past is the importance of leadership, though, too. And I want to just ask about, as you talk about, like, you know, topics of AI and talk about topics of innovation, you've always shared with me how you you really engage with your team, uh, which is a very large team. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's it, it's it's unique when you still hear the size of Southern New Hampshire, how you still engage at all levels. Yeah. I, I, um, so I think we have now long passed the sort of old industrial model. I'm sometimes tempted and trust to love your thoughts about this. Sometimes I associate it with a kind of military model of top-down leadership, hierarchical leadership. But even if you read Stanley McChrystal's book, Team Teens, like actually the military has led the way in rethinking at least some aspects of that. Um, the idea of, you know, commander's intent, um, which is we'll be really clear on the goal, but we're going to empower you on the ground to get there in the ways that you will know better than we are distant at, you know, CENTCOM someplace in Tampa, two, you know, 5,000 miles away from the place where the actions actually happen. So, so we really tried to move to the idea of, a, of a, an organization that has become increasingly a network of networks. And we work with the Center for Creative Leadership, which talks a lot about that. And part of the principle of that is that, you know, long ago, Hewlett Packard had a catchphrase about knowledge management. The phrase was, if, we, if Hewlett Packard only knew what Hewlett Packard knows. And the idea was there's so much knowledge that sits throughout the organization, but it's not harnessed, it's not engaged, it's not brought to the into the rooms, if I can quote Hamilton, into the rooms where it happens, where decisions get made. So we've been trying to push more decision making down. We've been trying to be less top down, less hierarchical in that sense. And what that frees leadership to do is to be in conversation in the organization, not the sort of model of, you know, I have to be smarter and sit on up high and sort of make decisions and know more than anybody else. We're in trouble if I know more about HR than our people in HR. We're in trouble if I know more about IT than our people in IT, and I could go on and on and on. So so it's funny, just, you know, just before coming to join you, I was on um, uh, an ERG, an employee resource group on mental health and wellness. Um, there were 130 of our team. And I just listened. 
Like they didn't say, what do you think, boss? Um, they were happy to see me, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but just, you know, listened and learned. And I think leaders today, um, you know, we still are called upon all the time to sometimes stand in front of the crowd. And, you know, at graduation, when I put on that sort of silly outfit with the big medallion and the medieval hat, you know, I call it silly, but it's kind of cool. And that's a ceremonial role. And I'm called upon in lots of places to tell our story, often to say leaders are the storytellers and chiefs of their organization. But in my book, I argue, you also have to be a collector of stories, including all the stories that make you uncomfortable, because it's in the place where you get uncomfortable, where you discover, wow, you know, we say this, we have a narrative about ourselves, but I just found a story inside my organization that doesn't fit our narrative and I don't like it very much. Those are the places you can improve. Those are the places where the best learning often happens. And I think that's an important part of the work. And you can't do that if you're not in conversation, if you're not in the organization. It's not to be in it as a micromanager. In fact, it's the opposite. It's to be in it as a listener and a learner um, and to really empower your people. So, you know, if, if there is, I think, I think this, this is not original to us, right? There's an emerging theory and field of management and leadership that talks about this. So if you know the book Humanocracy, for example, which is a really wonderful book that talks about this kind of model, right? It mentioned Stanley McChrystal in some ways is really in this vein. If I think about um, the book Unleashed by Frances Fry and her wife who were called in to Uber when that culture collapsed to rebuild it. And they're not afraid to talk about, you know, her definition of leadership is Leaders create leaders. Like your job is not to be the leader. Your job is to create leadership and leadership at all levels. So I think it's some combination of those things. It's also, by the way, kind of in some ways the best part of the day, right? Like I love those conversations, those drop-ins that I do often, you know, because we're so fully remote these days, dropping into a Teams call, like the one I just sat in. Um, people tend to love the fact that you're there. Um, but not to pontificate, but to hear, even though I'm pontificating in this moment because you asked me a question. <laughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> no, Paul, I get for, from, a, from a military perspective, I grew up in the Marine Corps, spent nine years there, back and forth in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and a lot of the hierarchy that was necessary was necessary to keep people alive. But if we want to innovate and grow and, and to, to, to move forward in, in different ways of thinking, you're exactly we need to uh, even in the military i worked for also was an intelligence officer for a while too so on the civilian side so and it's both relatively the same but there's a little bit more room for innovation on the civilian side uh martin dempsey's radical inclusion book i don't know if you've read that uh, but general dempsey it's a great book it talks about flattening organizations and it talks about how inclusion and 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 being able to to bring in other people is the way that we're going to innovate it's the way we're going to move forward um my district my doctoral dissertation was on on how do you prepare the department of defense uh, for next generation cyber warfare but it was from a leadership perspective on how do we cooperate with others how do we use the interagency how do we use different people to be able to come together and solve a problem and innovate and hierarchy was was uh, uh, it was, was one of the parts of it that was very, very kind of on the bottom of like, we can't be hierarchical when we have these conversations because we come in like this, this bulldozer or this like bull in a China shop. And we, 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 we point, we, we order, we, we, we do all these things and the people that, that really want to innovate and move forward, they kind of just move on. So yeah. I totally agree. And I think that's, that's an amazing conversation. Um, so one of the things that I saw from your from your bio and, and Jeffrey and I had this conversation before is that you're a first generation graduate. 
So Jeffrey and I are both first generation graduates as well. And mm -hmm. that means that means a ton to us um, just because it's it's a next for me. It's a next level up in my in my my family of origin. And, and it's 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 something that, that I'm proud of and it helps me. And so yeah. what does that really mean to you as you've guided this revolutionary journey through education, through innovation? Yeah, so I think um, it feels a little schmaltzy, so forgive me, but in some ways I feel like I, and I'm guessing you both, you know, have a sense you've viscerally experienced the American dream, the promise of what this country does when it works well, which is, in my case, taking a first-generation immigrant kid. Um, my father had an eighth-grade education, my mother a sixth-grade education. They worked really hard. And I worked in, a, I lived in a neighborhood where no one's kids went to college. Um, and my mother worked in a factory till she was in her 70s, but they, my parents also cleaned offices and homes uh, in, the even, in the evening, so second job, right? Like all that sacrifice that hardworking immigrants do. And, and you know, it was, it, my mother would clean in Western Mass, and this, well, I think it's still the highest per capita income neighborhood in the metropolitan uh, Boston area. And she would plunk me down as a little kid in the library as these beautiful homes. And you know, she'd be vacuuming, I could hear in the background, and she gave me kids books. And it was the, it was the kids of those families that went to college. Nobody in our neighborhood went. So when I went, it was a huge deal for our family. I wasn't any smarter than anybody in that neighborhood. I wasn't smarter than my older siblings who didn't have the opportunity, but I did have access to affordable, high-quality education. And I look at the lives of my two daughters now in the early 30s, if my parents were still around, they lead a life that my parents could scarcely imagine. It was like they spanned decades, centuries almost, right? We grew up in a kind of French Appalachia in New Brunswick in a, in a subsistence level farm that didn't have running water. And here my kids are jetting around the world and doing all the things that successful young 30-somethings do who've had privilege. Um, so to go to your question, I feel the pride that you talk about appreciation for how powerful education is kind of where we started it's an incredible engine of social mobility um, but i also am fueled in our work by the sense that it's less and less available to too many people mm. the thing that allowed the three of us and don't forget the fact that it doesn't hurt that we were white and male and that's not to take anything away about what a big deal it was or how hard any of us worked but but for a lot of people in this country higher education is not as available as it once was, whether it's financially out of reach or whether it's the structural inequities that have built into the system. So for me, a lot of that innovation is about how do we make that, that American dream possible for the young kid from Haiti or from Central America or from wherever? Um, and yeah, and, and how do we help change lives? You know, Paul, such an interesting time, right? When when you think about you know this issue, because there's been significant challenges, uh, obviously with with uh, the recent court case, um, but also uh, efforts in states uh, to really not allow an institution to even talk about diversity, mm -hmm. equity, inclusion. Yeah. And when you think about uh, when you think about first generation students, so much of that oftentimes does come from diverse populations. Um, yeah, by the way, we have to remind people, like, if your last name's Italian, in the time when your families were immigrants, they weren't considered white. Yep. Like, in the food study, early food study, my daughter is a doctor from Stanford in the area of sort of mm -hmm. history and science. 
she would tell you that in the early nutritional studies that the military did, Italian food wasn't included. Yeah. Like that's, wow. that's, right. That's minority food. Um, the Irish were considered, you know, uh, yeah. a, a minority group. Um, so every immigrant group has had to go through this and it astonishes me that people who are anti-immigrant or anti-diversity, if you want to sort of move in that direction, I mean, they ignore the, the science. The research is clear. Diverse yep. teams do better. Yes. Right. Um, boards of companies that are diverse, those companies perform better. And yep. that's gender. It's not just color. It's gender. It's, you know, it's every kind of inclusivity. Well, and even recent reports, you know, and there's been many others, uh, doesn't matter whether you look at, um, you know, whether you look at publicly reported or even health system reported, when the caregiving team, you know, can identify with the patient based on culture, you know, ethnicity, uh, you know, you name it, the care is better. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, you look at maternal mortality, a health system that has uh, a team of physicians that understands, you know, broadly and specifically the needs of Black African-American moms, that care will be better, uh, nine yeah. times out of 10, uh, statistically. And so yeah. it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I'm curious, I mean, obviously, I know this is a hot button issue, but I'm curious, you know, you talk with a lot of colleagues across the country um, that are certainly threatened in many ways right now on this issue. What do you tell them, uh, you know, to, to stay with it and keep at it? even when yeah. they could potentially have their institutions harmed by a governor or by, by government, uh, you know, within those states? Yeah. So one is a very practical question. The Supreme Court did not outlaw diversity. It outlawed the means by which universities were moving towards diversity. So we've got to be smarter and more creative. And we have to look at places like California, which actually went through this already. And you have to think differently about how you get there. Um, I think in some ways, the ability to move away from standardized ways of looking at candidates for a college is a really good thing. I'm not a fan of standardized testing. And um, I am a fan of asking people like, tell me about your, the adversity you overcame. And if that adversity includes, hey, I grew up in a you know an underserved community of color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like that actually counts. Like yeah. you get points on that one. It's got nothing to do with the race. It's got a lot to do with what you overcame. So we have to be more creative. We have to be smarter about this. Um, I think language matters. I think there are lots of ways to get at the same end in terms mm -hmm. of teaching inclusivity and diversity that have nothing to do with some of the language that so irks people on the right. Um, and look at, I get it. I come from a pretty working class neighborhood. And sometimes, even though my politics are pretty far left, I hear my colleagues use language or they, you know, take umbrage. I think, God, you're almost being as intolerant on the left sometimes as the right is being intolerant. I don't think they're equivalent, but I do think there are aspects of that. And you don't need to do that needlessly. Like, for, you know, for example, and this is just a, an analogy, um, I still can't talk about customer service, even though at a place like Southern New Hampshire University, we go to extraordinary lengths to take good care of our students in that respect. But if I simply use the phrase student success instead, I can talk about all the same behaviors. I don't, have to, I don't have to change what I want. If I say, look at our processes for doing A, B, or C are really unwieldy and cause stress to our students, we should change that because we need better customer service. Time out, what, what, what is customer service? <laughs> We're in education. If I say those, way, those, those very same policies and processes get in the way of our students' success, everyone lines up. So. We have to be sensitive to our audience, I, I, I think, here uh, in this work. Um, and then on another level, 
you kind of have a personal decision to where you're going to, you know, what hill do you want to die on? Where do you want to, where do you, you know, when do you stand up and say no? And and look at the, I was just thinking about this yesterday, the, I think it was an elected official in Arizona in the attempt to overturn the election oh, refused yeah. to do it. He refused to give in. And that was the was House Speaker. Yeah, and he was voted out of office. He was reprimanded by his the Republican Party of Arizona, and he was also awarded the Kennedy Medal of Courage. This is not about politics. This is about what you know. This that that was a conservative politician who stood up for the country. Um, I think you you have to you have to make that call. The, the Prime Minister of Australia, when there was a terrible mass shooting, who drove the uh, law to ban. Um, uh, uh, what do you, what's the, I want to say machine guns, but it's not machine guns. I'm using an oh, original phrase. Assault, right. assault rifles. Thank you. I know people argue what's an assault rifle, but, <laughs> but, you know, large capacity magazines, blah, blah, blah. The guy who did that, he was, he was, he was voted out of office. Jeez. Um, but he never regretted, like he could go to bed at night. He could look at himself in the mirror and say on this thing that mattered, I took a stand. And I think that's a question of your own sense of personal honor. And look at everyone's line is different. My line is yeah. different than yours, and you, but you got to figure that one out. What's that line? God, I love Hamilton, as you can tell. I got a second down. It goes <laughs> like, you know, if uh, what do you, what do you, if you don't know what you stand for, what do you fall for, right? Like, what do you, like, you have to know what you stand for. Yeah, yeah, and and, and Paul, the, the the great thing about this podcast in particular is that is Jeffrey Jeffrey leans further left and I lean further right, but we can still have great conversation with sure. amazing people, and that's key to what I think we are missing. It's just to be able to have a good conversation and take other people's points of view, other perspectives, other ideas. I mean, you talked about diversity. I'm getting goosebumps just by talking about this right now, but that's how we move things forward. That's how we create. That's how we as leaders, where this is a leadership podcast at the end, that's how we as leaders take our organization to the next level by creating teams that have different ideas that have opposing views and having conversations where an outcome is something not like anybody would have brought in there in the first place. It's something that's completely different than everybody's mindsets would have been had they had the group think happen or had they had the, the, just the, the social pressure to agree. I think that's a, it's a big thing. I mourn the loss of that. You know, when we first moved to New Hampshire, this is really, kind of a terrific state because it you know politics here is like sports right i mean we have first in the nation that we did so every politician would come through and we've had the opportunity to host so many here in our home um and to be in venues where but but the thing that was amazing to me when we moved here 20 years ago is the republicans and democrats were co-founders of businesses they were best friends they were married i had a trustee in every election he would have a sign for his favorite politician, always a Republican on the right side of his walkway. Uh, and his wife, Anne, would have one for the Democratic politician. And people would drive by like, what is the schizophrenia? It's like, no. And, you know, and you, you figured it out. And even here, which is a place which has always prided itself on that ability to have that conversation and to bridge those gaps, because it's ultimately a pretty centrist state, despite some mm -hmm. reputation, yeah. Um, yeah. we started to lose that. Right in this country, we have lost that. And if you think back to your point, Travis, of you know, team arrivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about right. Lincoln's cabinet. Yeah. Um, my da oldest daughter is in law school, and you know, the best judges always make sure that they at least have one clerk from the opposite political perspective, mm -hmm. because it will make the work you do that much better, and and better both in terms of what you reaffirm, like nope. 
this actually convinces me. But anyway, like, oh, I hadn't thought about that, right? Like better in both ways to your point. And yeah, I think you have to mix it up. Yeah, and I'm I'm writing I'm writing a my second book, and one of the chapters is on is on perception and how my perception is not reality. Like my perception is built off of 40 years of bias and 40 years of my experience and my yep. worldview. Jeffrey's experience and his perception is completely it not maybe it may they, we may agree on some points, but our perception perception is not is not always reality. Well said. And I think there are times when, you know, I'll be dealing with something that I find frustrating, someone's perspective, I think, and I'm like, you know, I haven't walked in that person's shoes. Like I have to remind myself, I don't know. And it was, you know, I had this, I'll give you an easy example as a woman who worked for me for a long time and she was great. And she insisted on being called doctor and then her name, I won't say her name, but right. Dr. Sally Smith. Um, and I was like, Sally, get over it. They're like, you can't swing a dead cat around you without having a doctor. Like, I don't go by doctor. I was like, I'm Paul, right? <laughs> like, why? And, she's, and then she said, I was a single mom. I went back when I was a lot older than everybody else. I scratched and clawed my way to get that doctorate. And I oh, wanted to acknowledge. I thought, got it. Apologize. Absolutely. For the rest of the time, you are Dr. Sally Smith in my book, right? And it was yeah. a good reminder. It was easier for me. I didn't, I, I did the traditional path. She didn't. So she deserved it. Um, I was teasing someone on my team. He's a black man who just sets the sutorial standard. And I was like, Adrian, what do you, Jesus, a pocket handkerchief. Like, I, I can never, like, I never, blah, blah, blah. and then in the day, you know, and he wasn't, he wasn't remonstrating me, but he just said, you know, my father told me, I have to work twice as hard for the same respect that you get. Mm. And part of that is look the part, right? Look the way, look the part you want. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, it always stayed with me. I was like, you know, thank you. Like I hadn't thought about it. No, like it wasn't a big deal. He wasn't complaining, but, but it's such a good reminder, like that these choices we make are grounded in experiences I may not have. Yeah, absolutely. And as leaders, we have to remember that. I mean, I just say if, if one thing, if people take something away from this whole podcast and, and the work that, that the amazing work Jeffrey does and, and the, the mediocre work I do is that like that's the perspective is and, and, and we have to understand that we not all of us are the same and different ideas really promote innovation. Um, that and the, the leadership's the theme of the podcast. And so I recently read about your trip to Antarctica. I want to unpack that just a little bit because we talk about on the, we talk about the uh, excuse me on this show we talk about how important it is for leaders to one get out and do things two have a sense of adventure have a sense of excitement about your life because you are if if, if you do I don't want to I'm going to turn it over to you in one second but if if you are as a leader doing those things it gives your your people permission to do those things as well. So one, how was the trip? <laughs> and and second, what would you say to leaders who are having trouble doing that and having trouble exper like experimenting, taking time to, to go do adventurous things? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to answer your question, but you said something in passing. I think it's so important because you alluded to the ways in which you're modeling for people. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things about leadership, even as I argue that it's less about it's less about, I think a leadership today is less epistemological. It's not so much what you know, it's ontological. It's how you are. It's your being. And what people do look at is they look closely at how you live, like how you walk absolutely. through the world, right? And I think you're absolutely right, Travis, that in some ways for a lot of aspiring leaders or people who look up to you, they will come to mimic in many ways, or at least you'll be giving them permission to do the things, right? So, so I do think that to your point, um, how you 
you know, I, I know I do an every other Wednesday message. It's a memo and a video. Started it during the pandemic because we thought we needed to heighten our communication. It was a weekly, and as things got calmer, we went to every other week. And people still walk up to me and say, um, you have no idea how important that was to me. Like, I watched your energy. And when I was scared in that first year, people thought, like, my family would sit and watch it, like, aye, aye, aye. Right. Wow. Um, and I talk about how we were going to get through this. And yeah, you know, this is this is a part we don't know yet. And blah, blah, blah. Um, but it, the one that got the most response was I, I did a Wednesday message where I said, you know, I had a terrible couple of days this week before today. Like, I'm feeling great. But wow, I was just down like this has been mm-hmm. long and this friggin pandemic is just getting to me in many ways. And I was just kind yeah. of venting a little bit. And I talked to was like, you know what, I'm going to give myself permission to have a day like that. I had more responses from people saying the fact that you have a day like that, like, of course, I'm just a normal, a normal human being like you, right? but, oh, but they goodness. were saying the fact that you, and that you would just acknowledge that you have no idea how important that was to me. I thought, wow, that's so right. Like, that's just a simple little example. Now to go to your question, I wrote about this at length in one of my messages to campus, which is I did this solo trip to Antarctica in January. And originally, so my wife and kids who are passionate travelers, it's kind of a family thing that we all share, all get seasick. And this is across the, some of the worst waters in the world. The Drake Sea are, is, is widely considered the worst waters in the world because it's the mm. Atlantic, Pacific, and Ar- Antarctic Oceans all coming together. This, it's, the current swirls around Antarctica. There's literally no landmass to break it up. So it's crazy. And it lived yeah. up to its reputation. So they're like, no way, no mas. I'm not doing that. You're on your own. <laughs> And then a good friend who's going to come, and this is not an inexpensive trip. And at the last minute, he's like, "Hey, I can't, can't do, I can't justify this." So I was going to go alone, and I hated the idea. I was about to cancel, and my wife said, "No, you should do it." And it's like, oh, I don't know. And then, and then I came to like the idea. It's like, oh no, it might be interesting. I have, I've never, I can't remember last time I traveled alone for this length of time. And my friend said, maybe I was, maybe I will come. And like I was thinking, no, don't do it. Like I'm, I'm good. So I did do it alone. And and the first first couple of days was great. Like, hey, don't have to negotiate when we're going to dinner and blah blah blah. And then the then I got into like, oh god, this is this sucks. Like, where's my wife? I want to say, hey Pat, look at this iceberg or whatever. Right? Like she's not there. And, and I, but I kind of stuck with it and people were like, come join us for dinner. And it's like, oh, thank you. You're having fun. I'm going to go do this other thing I need to do. And, and then, and then I sort of embraced it and it was amazing. And a couple mm. of things happened. So one, I've been a, a terrible, terrible attempts at trying to um, um, meditate. And I began mm. a meditation practice on this trip and I've kept it going now, seven months later, every day, every morning, and sometimes right before bed. And it makes a difference. I mean, it People have said to me, right? I came back. It was a trip in which I had some whole bunch of questions, were big questions for me um, that I wanted to spend time on. And and in a couple of cases, the answer the answer came. And the answer was, stop worrying about it. Hmm. It was like it's like let it go. Like it will, oh, it will take care of itself. And then there was something, and I describe it in this uh, my canvas blog, which is available on my blog uh, site, um, President's Corner. Um, something akin to a kind of spiritual religious experience they don't want to overstate it but i felt there was a point i mean antarctica is like no other place it's the closest thing to being on another planet without leaving ours it's Mm. it's capricious it doesn't care about you it doesn't care that you're there it doesn't care positively it's not malicious and yet 
it's not meant for human habitation. You you would die so easily and quickly in that habitat. <laughs> it's an extraordinary place, and its scale and its magnitude is amazing, and its capriciousness. You know, um, these catabolic, cat, catabolic winds that come off the glaciers, the temperature could drop 40 degrees in, a, in minutes, Oof. and the wind picks up, and you go from, you know, having you know, your gloves off and your scarf pulled down to all of a sudden, yikes, you know, putting hand warmers in and pulling things oh up and stepping up. Um, and, and then, of course, you're in the presence of absolute magnificence, like I, nothing I've ever seen, just the sheer size of glaciers. And I remember sitting by the window in the library and I was by myself and I was looking at it in the sun. I just, I got teary. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I was so moved and it wasn't, it wasn't negative or positive. It was that powerful sense of two things, um, being humbled so someone, someone said to me, do you feel your meaninglessness in the universe? Like, no, that'd be terrible. Like, I don't know, that's not a good feeling. Like, I don't want to feel meaningless. But I did feel humbled and connected at the very same time. Like wow. the connectedness of things. James Joyce in Portrait of the Artist talks about this sort of emotions of epiphany. And his idea was that there are points, moments in a life, and they're, and they're passing where everything feels like connectedness. Like, mm. right? The research on psilocybin, by the way, talks about just this. In fact, if you look at the uh, CT scans of people's brains, all of a sudden, nerve connections are happening like crazy. And people talk about the sense of everything came together. Um, I, I think there, you know, the moments in my life for that was also too, is that the moment when I saw our two daughters enter the world, like that moment where I just like, <sighs> Tolstoy talks of, you know, in Anna Karenina and uh, his wonderful novel, Levin, at the moment with Kitty, he realized Kitty loves him and they're playing that board game. He walks out into the night and the whole universe feels like it makes sense to him for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of those, it was those moments. I'm sorry, I'm sounding melodramatic about it, but I think, um, you know, it's finding those opportunities to step outside of the noise and to step outside of the day to day work. And it can take lots of forms. I think meditation is like a taste of it. It's a bit of perspective in the day. Um, I think it's really powerful. And the way people get that is, you know, so varied. I remember going to um, a leadership workshop on vocation. I brought my whole team Mm -hmm. years ago, uh, run by Parker Palmer, if you know his work. And it was about that sense of, you know, so many leaders talk about their work in the sense of calling. Mm-hmm. And you can get so mired in the crappiness of leadership, like day-to-day management, that you can forget the calling. And how do you find ways to do that? And they had done, I still remember they cited a study of some of the most successful leaders in Silicon Valley at the time, when mm-hmm. Silicon Valley was full of great leaders. You know, Now it's about how do I make an app that will make me a billion dollars as soon as possible. Yeah. But those early innovators were talking about how do we change the world, yeah. right? And those leaders, almost all of them had some sort of meditated practice in their day in their daily lives so for a catholic it could have been their morning mass every day for a runner it could be that time where i tune out the world and i get into that sort of right that endorphin rush of running that's my place meditation (laughs) what's that yeah that's my place i gotta get that runner's high yeah gotta get that (laughs) runner's high or you know some for some people it's a variation of that in terms of that kind of workout where you the world falls away yeah um so I think it's, it's you know, for leaders, it's how do you make sure you're carving out space for that? Are you self-aware enough to know when it's not when you need it? Like, I would argue you should try to make it a daily practice so it doesn't get to that. But, you know, life interferes. But do you, do you have the self-regulatory meta perspective to know when it's time? 
my wife will see this sometimes because people are surprised when they when I say I'm more introverted than you think because my job is very social. But there's a point where she's like, you're kind of done with humans, aren't you? I was like, yeah, like I need a day. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's just, it doesn't, it's not even a long time. It's not like I need a week. It's like, no, I just need a day or two days where the things that recharge my batteries are there. And that's, you know, playing racquetball like you. I was like, there's a certain thing about being on the court and competing where I just, I don't think about anything but the shot I'm trying to make. Um, but it can also be cooking. It can be doing reading. It can just, but it's not, it's not in that engagement. It's in getting mm -hmm. out for a bit, lifting out. You know, it, it, it's interesting, right? To, to your point, um, I think all aspects of travel teach us so much. I know, you know, we spent two weeks in, in Europe back in, in June and, and um, which was the first time we took our boys, which oh, know, great. For, for children eight to two traveling is, is an interesting journey, but, uh, but it, it's worth it. Right. Because, you know, I mean, my stepbrother got married in, in, in Greece and, and then we spent time in Athens. And so for me as a student of political science, it was like, this, yeah. is, this is awesome uh, from a history perspective. And, um, and then actually we went to the birthplace of where my mom was born in Germany, the actual home. Um, and so wow. we a picture of, 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 uh, of my boys uh, and my, and I with her there, which was uh, very humbling and got to see family. And, but, but to your point, um, what's neat about it is for me, it was probably the first time I've taken a trip that I can think of in my career and not checked email. Good for you. Um, you know, first time. And that's crazy to think over 15 years. Right. But, but to your point, like there was something I learned in that, like I've started every, even after since then, I'm like, I've got to have a checkout point. Uh, there's yep. gotta be a checkout point. Like you, yep. even though I'm a total yep. extrovert, there are some times when I get to Friday, I'm like, I don't want to see anybody actually. I mean, I love my family, <laughs> but I also just want to like be by myself. Yep. It doesn't happen, but, but, uh, eventually, you know, when, when the kids are older, I'm sure they will, but like, there's, there, it's just an interesting, uh, perspective. No. I'm also, I'm also intrigued because, uh, we had Dr. Uh, Stephen Tang, uh, who former CEO of Orishore, he was on here and, and he wrote a book, a test of our time, which is a great book about his leadership journey. And he shared a similar thing during COVID. He had started, uh, sending these notes out to the workforce. And, um, in fact, his book talks about, about that and what he learned and what, his workforce benefited. So it's interesting to hear, you know, you talk uh, about that as well. Um, but, you know, just appreciate, uh, you know, that. And, and let me just say, Travis, I have heard from really good sources that Paul holds some of the best events at his house uh, with elected <laughs> officials. So I'm hoping we'll be on the invite someday because I hear they're really, really good ones. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, one of these We've days. We've had some great yeah. ones. Yeah. yeah. And Paul, you talked about we're kind of circling back to the very beginning and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. There's a thing in, called, in transformational leadership theory, which I'm probably you're, you're very familiar with called idealized influence. And that's leaders are they're They're idolized by their people, whether they know it or not. Subconsciously, they, their people will emulate what they do. So yeah. what you've done and like you, you just took us to Antarctica. You like I was literally trans, like transported from Colorado <laughs> Springs to Antarctica. I felt cold, but I felt like it was just it was amazing. And to be able to give people permission to go and do those things. Um, I, my, my focus, one of my focus areas of research is hybrid and remote work and how it's impacting mental health. 
And so it's whether it's an education, uh, the, the, the work world, whatever that is. And one of my biggest recommendations is to is, is you have to get up and move, whether that's a, whether it's a meditation, whether it's a stretching, whether it's walking outside, take a meeting outside, take just get, get up and get moving. And um, it's, it's really helped people, I think, just to get physically, physically healthier, mentally healthier, emotionally healthier, spiritually healthier. So I love I just loved what you said. Yeah, I wholly agree with you, Travis. In fact, the newest thing that we're doing right now is we've launched a new organization called Human Systems, which is looking at how can we build a new model of learning uh, in an age of AI and what changes mm -hmm. about that. And one of the things that we really are doing is trying to center human wellness and relationship and connection. Um, if you take a look at what happened with social media, it's actually had the inverse effect, I would argue, which is people have never been more connected and never more lonely. Yes. Um, right. And it's made us more splintered and it's made us, everyone thought the internet was going to widen our perspectives with more diverse. Instead, we found echo chambers that just simply said, oh, you're right. So, so we don't want to repeat that sin as AI comes to, I think, dominate our world in many, many ways. But one of the things that I think is very possible and positive about it is that it may allow us to rethink the way we connect with each other and our own well wellness, right? So I never wear these things typically, but I'm wearing a Whoop. I don't know if you know Whoop, which is one yep. of a, it's a sort of, you know, wellness feedback band uh, around sleep, um, mm. mostly a lot of other things as well. But it's kind of amazing feedback, right? And I'm changing my behavior because of it. And we're wondering is, can you imagine a model of learning where we don't just give students feedbacks on their skill uh, mastery, but what if we gave them feedback on their well-being? What if we could yes. harness this data? And not for our use, but for their use, where I got a dashboard in my, if I'm in a learning platform, imagine I also had a wellness dashboard at the top. Imagine if it said, hey, Travis, like, notice you're signing on to stats by 10 p.m. Your history tells us that's not your best time. Like, are you sure you want to be doing this now? Yeah. Um, right? And and if you said, yeah, I have to because I you know my week's gone to hell. It's like, okay, let me give you more supports because this is not when you're at your best. Let me put you in a study group that's going on right now with stats because that will make you more in your game because you'll just be trained. Right? So it's very interesting yeah. about the ways we can enhance human wellness with AI in the background, as opposed to human displacement, which mm -hmm. is what I fear from some applications of AI. So does that just yeah. tell you if you're sleeping or does it all do other stuff? <laughs> I'm pretty good at knowing if I'm sleeping, at least that. <laughs> uh, no, it sort of measures all kinds of things like your heart rate variability, which science okay. tells us is really yeah. critical to your health. Uh, how much deep sleep or restorative sleep versus how many hours you spent in bed? How many times did you wake up on average in an hour, which is another indicator of your and then um, how much stress and strain you can withstand in the day? We'll say, hey, you didn't get a lot of restorative sleep last night, Jeff. You may want to dial it back a little bit. You may want to. Right. And I don't know that anyone pays attention to that suggestion. But I do. It does make me more self-aware. So you're not walking through the world kind of in, you know, autopilot but you're actually being intentional about your practices. And those practices include, and this goes to wellness, to your question earlier, how are you thinking about your well-being? How are you thinking, like I love uh, the, some of the AI applications that uh, we use, I'm looking at my computer because we use uh, Outlook 365. It will actually give me periodic reports on how I've been spending my time based on my calendar now. Wow. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's a shitload of time in meetings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot to be thinking about things like I got to think about this a little bit. Right. And um, so, yeah, I just think it's, it's exciting. And it goes to this question you asked, which is 
what are the what are the what are the devices we have to self-monitor as leaders? How do we take good care of ourselves? Um, because you can't really take good care of others unless you do take it, because that will catch yes. up with you. Yes. You know, there is in universities uh, kind of you know stories of my colleagues, predecessors, and 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 other presidents who who fell prey. And that can look a lot of different ways. It can be what used to be called a nervous breakdown, but some sort of, you know, so, so, social, uh, emotional breakdown. It can be drinking, right? It can be sort of in behaviors that try to get you through. It can take lots of forms. Um, you can't just take it for granted. Yeah. yeah. And it could be working out. It could be, it, it could be really anything. Uh, I just thought of this one. We got to work on this. One of the, we need to be able to in higher ed or education, be able to, we'll put up, we'll have everybody wear a device. All the students will wear a device. Professor will walk into the room and we'll say, okay, pop quiz. We're having an, uh, an impromptu test on X, Y, or Z and all their heart rates pop up onto the, uh, onto the screen just to see, <laughs> just to see the level of stress that those kind of things put into, put into play. Um, and again, some of this can get creepy, but like there are interesting applications right now that are reading kind of the engagement and sentiment of students in a classroom to say to you, you know, so the feedback you might get is, Travis, you don't have an engaged group of people in front of you. Mm-hmm. Like either that's you or them, but you should do something because right now this isn't working as good learning. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Like you don't want a surveillance state, but you do want ways to sort of harness this technology to make you better in your human relationships. Absolutely. So, Paul, I just thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. Like, I we I could probably talk to you for the week. Like Jeffrey and I could probably talk to you for the next two hours, and we would still be going and going and going. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to know just where where can our listeners find you? Where 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 can they pick up your 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 books? Where can they read about you? Um, where do you want them to go? Oh well, um, I do have a Twitter account. So as <laughs> Jeffrey suggested, that's just SNHU Prez is my handle at SNHU Prez P R E Z. Um, on the SNHU website, there's something called the President's Corner, and it's got blog posts, and you can find like pictures of penguins and everything from the Antarctica trip and the stories of that. Um, but also kind of the work we're doing and links to you know uh, talks and books. And then my two books, um, they're both available on Amazon and lots of other sites, depending on where you want to buy your books. But thank you for asking. It's, uh, yeah, it's good to, to yeah, this yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and listeners, we just, we do, we thank you so much for tuning in. We have conversations like this, not, not like this, but there we're, we're talking about leadership. We're talking about healthy leadership. We're talking about how to be healthier leaders. So, uh, thank you all for, for tuning in, subscribe for more, and we will see you next time on the holistic leadership podcast. Thank you, Dr. LeBlanc again. Thanks so much, Travis. Thank you for having me. It's really great being in conversation with you. I hope it was helpful. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah.